right? So that someone's sitting there asking, okay, without intermediaries, who ensures the money isn't double spent? Back to the Byzantine general's problem. Who sets the monetary policy? Who settles transactions? The answer in Bitcoin at its simplest is everyone but no one. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome back. This is our fourth episode in our Bitcoin Basics series with Daz and Seb from Looking Glass Education. If this is your first episode you're listening to in this series, we recommend that you listen to the previous three first. This episode is focused on a lot of the more technical aspects, the under the hood of the Bitcoin protocol. This covers a lot of ground. We will be linking to resources in the show notes to help those along the way who may need more material. The most important thing to understand, the real innovation, the problem that Bitcoin solved is independently agreeing about a history of events without a central authority. That is in a nutshell what Satoshi solved and what separates Bitcoin from all the previous attempts before it and all of the copycats after it. Bitcoin is the only truly decentralized monetary system in existence. Every single cryptocurrency is compromised, usually in a multitude of facets. Proof of stake is inherently centralizing and will eventually result in a very similar system to what we currently have. Other proof-of-work coins have severe security problems because they do not have the network effect that Bitcoin has. Game theoretically, launching a new coin with the exact same properties of Bitcoin will fail. Bitcoin can be an extremely complex beast to understand when you first encounter it. Keep storing it simple and secure with a CoinKite Mark IV. The Mark IV is the industry standard for security. It is our preferred signing device. The Mark IV can be used by absolute newbies to Bitcoin with some simple instruction. It also gives you room to grow. CoinKite also offers the new Q1, which is effectively a Mark IV with a full QWERTY keyboard and a QR scanner for expanded use cases. If you just want to buy some cool Bitcoin swag, CoinKite's got you covered with two variants of the block clock and other Bitcoin paraphernalia. Use code BCB for 5% off the Mark IV. We hope you have your tickets to the Bitcoin conference in Miami. If not, we have a coupon code BCB23 that can get you 10% off the price of a ticket. We will be there and we hope to meet some of our listeners. Use code BCB23 for 10% off. We're here, gentlemen. Another round of Bitcoin basics. I've been looking forward to this for a month. These are some of my favorites on here. How is everybody? Doing super. Thanks for having us, boys. Good to see you again. Yeah, 100%. This is honestly like one of my highlights of the month, so I'm pumped to talk. Same here, and I'm especially I'm especially excited because uh, Balaji says Bitcoin is going to top one million dollars in ninety days. So I mean, we don't we have like three months left in our working years, boys. We're going to be uh, living in a dystopian world of uh, the rest of the world collapsing on us, and the Mad Max scenario sets in. We all have to just hide in our bunkers with our Bitcoin. Uh, Lynn Alden shared a tweet yesterday. Um, must have been digging through the Balaji archives, and I, I don't even know who this guy is actually. So maybe you guys can fill that in for me. But um, she was digging through his archives and picked up a um, a tweet from January 2020, where he was saying, "This pen, this coming pandemic will be an opportunity for governments to instate authoritarian controls and 
force mask wearing and all of these things from January 2020 which come to fruition. So I'm thinking, hmm, maybe he's a time traveler and maybe this is real otherwise. My thoughts on him are he is not a dummy, um, but he is, I don't know, he's a, he's fairly, he's a bit, he's a shit coiner, I would say. But he, I've read his book, The Network State. I've listened to a lot of hours of him talking to Lex Friedman. I don't think he's an idiot, but I think he's a sensationalist in a lot of ways. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. And you you have to ask, like, why is he doing this? I'm going to hand this off to Seb because he's done some math for us. This doesn't make any sense if he's trying to increase the size of his net worth. Elaborate, Seb. You sent a tweet earlier. Yeah, no, 100%. And it's one of those things like we were discussing just before this, uh, Josh and I, which is the fact that although it would be great for Bitcoin to be a million dollars plus, you've got to imagine what the world is going to look like for that to happen. Like if that is to happen, we are not experiencing just Bitcoin a million dollars plus. We're experiencing quadrupling of food prices. We're experiencing quadrupling of gas prices. Like the world is going to be in a much darker place. So even though I'm like very pro Bitcoin, I don't necessarily, unless there's, I don't know, some central banks decide to invest in it and that's what pushes it up. I don't necessarily think that uh, we should necessarily push for this because I think the world is going to be a much darker place. But yeah. as for some math, like I think it's really interesting to step back and ask like, why is he doing this? So for those that are unfamiliar, he's basically said that he will take a bet with anyone, two people, $1 million each, so $2 million bet, that Bitcoin within the next 90 days is going to be north of $1 million US dollars, which is pretty mind-blowing because it's sitting at $27,000 right now. And if you think about that, well, why doesn't he just purchase Bitcoin right now? If he was to spend $2 million US on Bitcoin, he would get 74 Bitcoin. So if he's getting 74 Bitcoin and in 90 days... Bitcoin is not north of $1 million. He's probably still got around $2 million, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But if he's correct in his bet, he's now got $74 million, which is, what is that, like 36, 37 times what the $2 million bet payout, even if he is correct. So it, to me, it looks like a publicity stunt. And as again, we were talking about, it sometimes can look unfavorably on kind of the Bitcoin community because it can make us look like just speculative individuals that want to just kind of like bet into it. We don't really care about the direction and true authenticity of where Bitcoin is going. We're just trying to bet big numbers. Yeah, it's clownish for sure. Generally speaking, I am not a fan of these stunts. I actually think it's a good thing to start out a Bitcoin basics chat with because this is what a lot of people, maybe you could say, fall prey to or get distracted by as they're learning, as they see some random dude Say that, say that Bitcoin is going to be worth a million dollars in three months. Um, price can be a great teacher. It can be a good thing that can pull you in. But if it doesn't foster actual research and investigation and, and some degree of understanding, it's not good. So I think, yeah, this can be bad for both, both the people that buy as a result of it because they're not being set up to hold and for outward perception, as you said, additionally, we're not proponents of rooting for the system to implode. Million dollar Bitcoin in three months, as has already been addressed, is a messy, messy situation where the banking system is probably imploding. And uh, there's a lot more people I care about in this world than just me and my own family. I've got extended family, friends, and that would that would have the global financial system in complete disarray. So yeah, I, I agree with Jeff Booth and many others that we want this thing to 
unwind or transition slower than that. But yeah, generally speaking, massive through the roof price predictions, I don't think are a good reason to buy Bitcoin or a good way to suck people in. Yeah, I agree. And it also, these sort of uh, lofty predictions, if they do tempt the odd person, when they don't come true, it just gives another source of, um, you know, FUD for people to, to riff off. And, you know, I was guilty as well of um, even like in a less sensationalist approach, um, falling for plan B's sort of model, not falling for, but being a proponent of the stock to flow model. Um, yeah. When it, I mean, and I think deep down that still makes sense the stock to flow model um eventually over time as the uh supply of a certain you know um good that's in high demand diminishes then its price will go up over time right um so i think fundamentally that model makes sense it was just too much focus on the timing um and when that didn't come to fruition as predicted then you know it's just another layer of oh you told me about this and it didn't come true therefore it's a scam so uh, you know i think they're massive distractions from the end goal of what this thing you know what we all purport it it's going to do over the long term there's always uh as an investor you tend to take a bet in one direction but never two so you tend to do time or you tend to do price but doing both is like very very risky because you've got to be absolutely spot on so most people, yeah. again, like they either pick a price. You know what? I think Bitcoin is going to be north of a million dollars. Like, awesome. We can have 10 years, 15 years. There's time for that to happen. Or you say, I think Bitcoin over the short term is going to go up. And so, but you never really, when you're picking both, it's a, it's a risky business. Absolutely. I do think it's worth saying, though, that, you know, Josh and I were texting about this earlier today, and it this thing could do it can do the unexpected we've seen that through the years both up and down but it could have swings in either direction but definitely up that blow minds just because of how it's designed when you have totally fixed supply and demand that we expect is going to come in um, it doesn't take much at the margin for this thing to move and when you start to realize how unique it is in today's marketplace and how well positioned it is to perform given the fragility of today's economic environment. It, you don't have to add that many huge tranches of assets, even if you just looked at fixed income market, for example. You, even just a small percentage of that flowing in at the margin could move this price in, in face-melting manners. Right. And so that's why I, d I do think maybe there is a time and place for a little bit of FOMO and sitting on the sideline might not be a great idea. One, it's interesting. There's the Croesus has an article, and I can't remember the exact dollar amount, but he talks about like if all central banks globally were to put something like 0.5% of their asset base into something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin's price would be like 400,000, 500,000. And so that's where we wouldn't necessarily see hyperinflation in day to day prices, but at the same time, you're seeing Bitcoin's price go up. And I think that is where if Bellagio is right, and it is a best case scenario and he's right, but the world is not imploding. I think it would stem from something like a central bank, a big central bank coming out and saying we're investing in Bitcoin. And then we get FOMO from other central banks. That's probably a best case scenario if yeah. Bellagio is going to be right. Yeah, he does mention central banks in that thread. And I think that is the basis of his interpretation of that. But that is still one hell of a grand statement to make, especially from someone in his position and the cachet that he holds with a lot of people. Um, it's going to look real stupid for him if this doesn't even if it doesn't even get close to happening, you know?
Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, I say we pivot into this. Uh, so the, the topic of uh, discussion today is Bitcoin's technical side. Uh, we're going to basically try to submit a good summation of uh, how Bitcoin works for the layperson. And forgive us, listener, if we kind of dive too deep down some of these rabbit holes. It's hard not to sometimes. But Satoshi had all. So basically all the constituent parts of Bitcoin existed minus some details before Bitcoin was actually animated by him which is interesting. All these parts existed. He basically was the one who orchestrated putting all these parts together in a way that game theoretically worked and made and bootstrapped this thing from being completely worthless in 2009 to the grand heights of almost 70,000 a couple of years ago to $27,000 today. So basically he recognized the tyranny of the current the financial system he was operating under right after the great financial crisis. He wanted to engineer a system that could function as money and remove all trust from third parties. His goal has basically been successful up until this point. And humans, basically his concept was humans can't be trusted and we're all flawed, greedy creatures. And we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have the levers of control of the monetary system. And so he thereby removed them in a roundabout way. I think we should start this thing off by talking about the Byzantine generals problem really quick. And this is something that people hear and they're like, it just sounds complicated. It's a very simple idea. In a centralized system of accounting, somebody is in control of the books. Somebody is editing the books and you have to trust that party completely because they have the, the ability to control it. In a decentralized system, there's nobody to trust. And so what you need to do is create a way for trustlessness to prevail. The, the problem is characterized generally by imagine an ancient battleground where generals had surrounded a city. And the problem is they had to all coordinate in order to attack and be successful. They couldn't trust that their messengers wouldn't be intercepted by the enemy and therefore compromised. So they couldn't all centralize the, the basically the centralized control function was removed because they couldn't trust their messages to each other. So Bitcoin is the first decentralized form of money to solve this problem. And he solves it in a variety of ways, primarily proof of work, which is well, we're going to get into that later, but proof of work is effectively what solves this decentralized trust problem. We've got a lot to bite off here. Like even as we start this discussion, I'm like, wow, this is this is maybe the hardest of the planned eight episodes because so I don't much. think I don't think this is fit for the audio discussion format. Like I'm going to say right off the bat. If you really want to understand how Bitcoin works, you're going to have to study and read about it. There's no way you're going to be able to take away from an hour, hour and a half with the four of us. Hopefully, you know, we'll make Josh intro some great stuff there. Hopefully we can bite some of that off and explain some of it. Um, I think like my goal is is for us to, you know, we've spent the first three episodes sort of unpacking the implications of this thing and the fact that it's arguably the hardest money the world's ever seen, the most in inclusive money the world's ever seen. And I think the goal here today is to unpack um, why and how that matters and is the case. And before I hand it off, I agree, Josh, like it's it's important to recognize that this this didn't just come out of the blue. Like this is a problem. This Byzantine generals problem you just highlighted is something that had been worked on in, in in decentralized systems for a long time. And at its core, Bitcoin's an amalgamation of numerous different discoveries, right? One-way hash functions, cryptography, um, 
the blockchain which Satoshi added, but these are problems that people have been working on for decades, and Satoshi presented a solution that's been workable now for 14 years, and has the the makeup and design and architecture to to continue to to be so. That's kind of my intro, but I think I think we've got a lot to bite off here. It's going to be hard for this to be digestible, but we're going to do our best. Sweet. Okay. Let, I think it's important to simplify down the Byzantine generals problem and connect it to a centralized transaction. And so the way I like to try and think about it, and it's like simplest form, and Josh touched on this, is like, so imagine there is like a castle. And now there's two individuals or two entities that are trying to attack the castle. Now these entities have to attack together for them to win. If one of them attacks, then the castle is going to overpower and in the end defeat both of them. So they have to attack together. But the problem is, one of the entities can send, say, a horseman to the other entity telling him, okay, we're going to attack at dawn. But the problem is, by the time the horseman reaches the other entity, how do we know that that is the horseman they sent? It could have been intercepted by the castle, and therefore the message has been distorted. Or, how do we know that once the horseman has reached the other entity, how do we know that the other entity has even received the message? And so this is the problem when it comes to transacting is if Josh and I want to exchange money between one another because we want to do a trade, how do we ensure that Josh is going to hold up his end of the bargain and I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain? And this is where like Visa has come in. So Visa, MasterCard, banks, what they do is they're a middleman that ensures that both parties are meeting their obligations. But the problem is now we have to rely on that middleman. So if that middleman cannot be trusted, such as the case with our central banks, such as the case with our banking institutions that have been going bust recently, in all of these instances, all of a sudden, they're not holding up their end of the deal, and both of us are losing out because of this middleman. And so what Bitcoin has tried to do is to remove this middleman and allow that situation where we can ensure that both entities are able to attack the castle and communicate with one another in a trustless, permissionless way. So they don't need permission, they don't need to rely on trust, and they can communicate. And I think that is so important. I don't know if you guys want to add on that. I'll, I'll add, I think that was a really succinct way you broke that down. I think that basically the way that this problem was solved in Bitcoin is to create this blockchain, which is a public distributed ledger um, that solves this double spend problem by signing. Basically, each block is signed by the previous block and on and on. And then the proof of work itself causes there to be this game theoretical situation at play where the only the longest chain can be provably the one that is is the actual chain by having to expend energy in the real world. So I know I'm I'm trying to I'm getting ahead of us a little bit here, but all of these all of these pro, all of these different systems that we're going to talk about today, they all coalesce to help solve this this Byzantine's general problem effectively. I would say solving this problem though, before we keep going, why does solving this problem matter, right? What What is the discovery of Bitcoin? We've talked about it a lot in the first three episodes. Bitcoin is the removal of intermediaries from the transfer of value. That is the discovery of Bitcoin. It is a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system that works in the digital age without any intermediaries. This Byzantine generals problem, this double spend problem, was the sticking point to get here. Right? There were people working on this, as we established for a long time, trying to create a decentralized system, a set of rules without rulers in the middle, removing intermediaries, people you have to trust from the movement of value. And the, and the solution to this problem, which is, the, which is a number of things, it's a decentralized node network, it's a proof of work, 
hashing, mining, it's the community itself, it's it's the whole thing. The the what Bitcoin is, what he put on this white paper back here was the solution to this problem that for the first time unlocked a workable value transfer protocol that does not require anyone in the middle. I think to, to zoom out, that's important to establish what the implications of the solution to this problem are. No, I think you're absolutely spot on, Dan. And the way I like to try and think about it as well is that like when it comes to money, more than anything, we need to have like unfettered access to being able to express ourselves monetarily. So we don't want to be impeded by someone, some intermediary, some bank, some credit card issuer. We don't want to be impeded in our ability to be able to uh, spend our money. And the way I like to think about it is, so a lot of individuals look at say, and this is a bit of a roundabout way, but I think it's pretty powerful. A lot of individuals look at say something like ADHD and they think that ADHD is simply this genetic thing we're born with. But there are no tags highlighting that it is genetic. And there's actually a lot of data pointing to the fact that it's environmental. Now, why is it environmental? Because as a kid, if we find ourselves in an uncomfortable situation, we have three things we can do. We can fight, so we can fight our parents. Well, guess what? Our parents are a lot bigger than us. We're probably not going to fight. We can flight. We can run away. Again, they provide shelter for us, so we're probably not going to do that. Or we can uh, freeze, and we can just kind of ignore our emotions and kind of pretend that that uncomfortable feeling is not there. But in doing so, we're impeding our ability to learn to how to express ourselves. And in the end, later in life, Whenever we find ourselves in an uncomfortable situation, what do we do? We distract ourselves. And so from being unable to express ourselves fully, you can see the effects on our emotional body, on our ability to be able to uh, kind, of, kind of interact with the world from as an adult. And so when we look at money, the same thing is true. When governments start to infringe upon people's ability to be able to spend uh, and express themselves monetarily, we start to see issues. So we start to see governments starting to engulf the private sector when they start printing money and taking jobs. We start to see uh, overconsumption of products. When our money is losing value and we're incentivized to spend, we start deteriorating our rainforest. We start deteriorating our environments. Uh, when businesses, when there's moral hazard because governments are bailing out businesses, those businesses are going to further be fiscally irresponsible. And so when governments start to infringe upon our ability to express ourselves monetarily, all of a sudden we start to see all of these byproducts. And so this is why we need to remove intermediaries so we have an accurate representation of what people value, an accurate representation of why this person wants to spend their money there and this person wants to spend their money there. And I think that is so important. Uh, and this is arguably, I would say, one of the most important things about Bitcoin is free or proof of expression. We can prove that someone is able to express themselves where they want to see fit. So just bringing that sort of back full circle into the um, topic of this Byzantine generals problem is is how do you remove that trust, and and this was the the problem that all of these previous iterations of this uh, faced was how do we remove those intermediaries but maintain a true immutable record of account, and and so that's what you know how through Bitcoin and the blockchain we were able to solve this is to distribute the copy and the truth across many participants and this is where the nodes tie into this um, this argument so a node is simply just a copy of the Bitcoin software that you choose to run on a computer there are dedicated hardware that you can do to um, you can obtain to, to do this in a more efficient way but ultimately you can just run it on your PC if you've got enough space and, and computational power and basically what that's doing is it's creating this mechanism of uh, that we refer to as consensus whereby if I choose to run a node at home, I have got a, 
immutable copy of the blockchain which I've downloaded from from start to finish uh, and I participate in this peer gossiping network whereby we are all communicating through the internet and verifying each person's copy of the code so that I'm you know I'm verifying Josh's copy I'm verifying Dan's copy I'm verifying Seb's copy so between us if any one of us was to go and alter that truth we have a consensus mechanism whereby we can all check off each other. So, um, you know, if Dan is a bad actor and he chooses to go and change the history, all he's effectively going to do is change his version of the truth, whereby myself, Josh and Seb are still going to be able to confirm with each other and say, oh, well, this guy's out of consensus. We've got a, um, a, a consensus of truth amongst us, which forms a majority. So we can just basically disregard Dan's copy. And that's why it's important to also note that even if there was a 51% attack, often this 51% attack gets thrown around. I might be jumping a little bit ahead here, but hopefully we can bring it all back in, in the frame. But um, just because there's 51% of nodes saying that the truth is one thing, nothing can change me or force me to alter my copy of the truth. So if, you know, Dan was to go out and, and we've got our little network of four nodes here and Dan was to go out and he's the bad actor and he goes and spins up another five nodes and then, you know, out of the out of the total amount of nodes that are on the network now, he's got five of them. And, and you know, well, we've got, bad with math, there's nine in total, right? He's got five, so he has the, he has the majority. Just because he changes the truth on all of his versions of the of his node, Nothing can force us to go and backwards change our version of truth that we're running on our computer. And that's what's so powerful about this distributed form of trust is that just because he comes in and says, now I've got a different version, no one can make me go back and change what I had previously. Uh, and so this just sort of ties it back into this Byzantine generals problem is that how do we all agree on a truth? It's well, if you were here from the start, you know, there's a little bit when you download a node, uh, there is a little bit of trust in the fact that you're building it from scratch. But this is where the blockchain and proof of work and hashing all starts to tie in together so that we can know what was truth from block one right up through to block 770,000, whatever we're up to today, is, um, is due to this hash and proof of work function, which we can hopefully start to dig in and start peeling some of those pieces off now. But it sets up that framework for a distributed copy of all of the transactions that have ever occurred on the system is distributed yeah. amongst the nodes that choose to participate and nobody can force a change in anybody's version of history. Yeah, it's helpful also to think about this in other open systems that we are familiar with, like the English language, which we're speaking to each other right now. I can decide to make up new words, but you can't know what they are if I haven't shared them with you or if no one accepts them, if society just decides in general, like that's a bullshit word you've just made up. Now you're just speaking nonsense. Nobody gives a shit what you think that word means. It doesn't actually mean anything or, you know, copies of the Bible that have existed for thousands of years. Another perfect example of this, you can change your version of the Bible, but it doesn't actually change anything in reality because all the other millions of Bibles in the world haven't changed. You are simply just making stuff up and nobody believes you. And that is going back to Bitcoin, these disseminated uh, nodes that are throughout the world. These are basically the Bible of Bitcoin that can't be changed by anybody. And it's our, I don't think it's much of an argument to say these are much more uh, robust than any of the other things. It's a lot less 
it's it's incredibly harder to change Bitcoin than it is English or the Bible or any of these other open systems we've ever had in history. And the, and the hogs are out of the pen now, and it comes down to network effects, right? So I thought you boys would like that. Hogs yeah, we do. Many hog analogies um, as possible, gentlemen. We, we need to <laughs> up the hog analogies in the basic series. They're low. Let's get well, the cadence pe- out People here. understand hogs, you know, it's particularly slippery ones and trying to hold on to them. So the, the hogs are <laughs> escaped the pen now. They're muddy and they're slippery, and, and they've roamed free, right? They're, they're out there now. So it comes down to network effects. So there's nothing stopping me starting a Facebook tomorrow, right? But nobody's there. Um, you know, I could spin up another Facebook and say, hey, come join, or Wikipedia, right? That's another good analogy is I can start, I can go and copy the whole version of Wikipedia and start changing things, but nobody knows my version of Wikipedia. It's lacking the network effects. It's lacking that now distributed massive version of trust where if there's no one fishing there, you're not going to catch anything. So this is why, you know, that argument against um, Bitcoin can be copied and, and forked is like, yeah, that's true. You can go and copy and start your own version of Bitcoin up, but it lacks the network effects. And that's why all of these other altcoins have ultimately failed over time is because that lacks that network effect and they're prone to attack. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you summarized that so well a second ago. And uh, for those who are not familiar, what DAS was basically summarizing is something called distributed ledger technology, which is basically obviously where you're distributing those ledgers like worldwide or globally, so that we have an accurate representation in many different places so one person cannot change one representation and say this is now the truth. But it's also so much deeper than that, and we don't have to go too deep, but one of the things I think is really important to note is that our system incentivizes productive behavior. Now, what do I mean by that? The miners, so when we're looking at the role of the miners and the role of the nodes, so as Daz mentioned, the nodes hold a copy of the ledger. But it is the miners that actually process transactions. So if Josh and I were to send money back and forth or Bitcoin back and forth, it is the miners who were to actually process that transaction, placing it onto the ledger. Now, the thing is, as a miner, they're rewarded. If they actually are are successful in processing transactions, they're rewarded by being given Bitcoin. Now, if Josh wanted to, or let's just say we had a miner and Josh wanted to rig the system in his favor, he could alter the transaction doing whatever he wants to go and do. But all of a sudden, if the nodes do not agree, then they're just going to pull that reward from Josh and Josh is going to be out of pocket. He's going to spend all of this energy trying to process transactions, trying to rig it in his favor, and it's just been wasted. And so in the end, what it basically ends up incentivizing is productive behavior, because if you do not uh, align with the rules, then you're not going to be rewarded. So you're basically wasting your time and energy trying to process transactions for nothing. It's fruitless. I think this topic that we're currently on is is going to be the most important theme of the episode. I think if you're a listener, this is going to be the real meat and potatoes if you're if you're just getting into this. And that's I'm going to do my best to summarize some ideas and maybe throw in a couple new ones. Paradoxically, Bitcoin is extremely secure because in some ways you could say it's it's insecure. It's it's a radically open system, right? So it's completely open source. It's a totally public ledger. Anyone with an internet connection can run and audit the blockchain. Anyone can change Bitcoin. Any one of the four of us this afternoon could change Bitcoin and run our own version. But paradoxically, it's paradoxically it's through this radical openness that we get tremendous security. And you guys have, have hit on some awesome examples of this, right? It's akin to saying anyone can change the English language. Anyone can change Wikipedia. Anyone can change the Bible. Anyone can change any of those things, but nobody's going to fucking care. And that's the same thing with Bitcoin. So the way that this 
ledger and let's let's i guess define that ultimately what bitcoin is is it's just a ledger right the foundational data structure behind bitcoin we call it a blockchain but it's basically the ledger the data that is bitcoin that's an accounting of who owns what this ledger this accounting this excel spreadsheet however we want to conceptualize it is at this point based on what we know run on hundreds of thousands of computers totally independently that are constantly checking one another so as Josh hinted at with the Bible, it is akin to trying to change in a Bitcoin transaction is akin to trying to change Genesis chapter four, verse three. Good fucking luck, right? Everyone's got it. It's been around forever. It's got a massive network effect. It's got a ton of ardent supporters that want to make sure that chapter and verse doesn't change. And oh, by the way, those people are incentivized for it not to change because ultimately what Bitcoin is enforcing is a hard supply cap of 21 million. It's the hardest money the world's ever had, as we've articulated. It's got no terminal inflation, right? And who wants that to change? Who that participates in this network wants that to change? Who wants their money to be devalued? Nobody. So not only is it massively distributed, but that massive distribution is bolstered by a bunch of people who are incentivized for it not to change whatsoever. So it's one of those things that when you first look at, you think, Oh, that's completely insecure. It's totally open. Anyone can fuck with it. And then you realize, oh shit, because of that, it's actually incredibly secure and nobody can change it. And that is a mind fuck. And that takes a long time to get to, but it's through this radical openness that we disintermediate money, right? So that someone's sitting there asking, okay, without intermediaries, who ensures the money isn't double spent? Back to the Byzantine general's problem. Who sets the monetary policy? Who settles transactions? The answer in Bitcoin at its simplest is everyone but no one does all of those things. And it's a beautiful thing. And it can't be replicated. That's the, that's the last thing I'll say here is just this Bitcoin, not blockchain thing. Blockchain's cool. It's, it's, it's a linchpin in the discovery of Bitcoin, among other things. Okay, it's, it's kind of what Satoshi brought that you could say is new or one of the things he brought that's new. But if Josh runs a blockchain this afternoon, no one gives a shit. It's, it's who's running it, how they're running it, and how many of them there are. The robust decentralization exactly. and the spreading thin of the blockchain that matters. And that's where the rest of crypto is massively missing it. Nobody gives a shit about your blockchain. It's about the network and everything working behind the blockchain that matters. And Bitcoin, in our view, is the only one that that is worth paying attention to. There are, at last I looked, something like 20,000 other cryptocurrencies that exist. Every single one of them is some kind of a deviation of Bitcoin or even an exact copy of Bitcoin. So that's back to the points we've all been making here. You can take the exact same thing. You can copy and paste it and you can create your own coin, but you don't have the network of miners. You don't have the hash rate, the hash, the basically the security model isn't there. So if it is anything that's valuable, it's going to immediately be attacked by <laughs> probably Bitcoin miners who can jump onto that network. They can attack it while it's in its infancy and completely destroy it. Um, and that's again, back to the network effect you were talking about, Daz, which is Good luck attacking Facebook. Good luck taking down Twitter. These network effects, they have momentum that cannot, well, I shouldn't say it cannot be stopped, but it's incredibly hard to stop. And once that ball is moving downhill, Bitcoin in its 14th year is at least years ahead of most of them, many, probably a decade ahead of the vast majority. And 
its incentive system is set up in a way that there's no reason for people to leave Bitcoin to go to some other coin that has less security and probably doesn't have anywhere near the node structure. It just basically, there is no contender when it comes to Bitcoin. You make you make a good point, man. And it's um, any other blockchain has to go through some period of centralization. And that's why, you know, Bitcoin really was the discovery of number zero. It was the first, you could argue from the first block, it was kind of centralized, right, with Satoshi. But, you know, whether he did this on purpose or not knowing the effects, he, he walked away from the project, released it to the rest of the world in order to for anybody to participate to start mining and participating in that network and it was pretty well decentralized from word go whereas all of these other blockchains that um, because they lack those network effects and the and the miners and the network of security they have to go through this period of centralization otherwise they're prone to attack and that is why everything else but bitcoin you know is regarded as centralized in name only, uh, decentralized in name only. They are centralized at some point. They've gone through an iteration of of being controlled by a select number of people, um, and most of them are prone to like pre mines and other incentive structures, whereby those people who who set that up hoard a whole heap of the of the kitty for themselves before they release it to the, to the wild right and that's probably getting off on another topic but um it just sort of highlights that importance of a decentralized network and bitcoin was the only one to achieve that from its infancy Seb, no that's it i, I think that, again absolutely spot on and i think one other thing that's really important to note is that when it comes to bitcoin many of you guys if you're listening to what we're saying and you're new to this you're probably going to say okay well if people can't change it, then how's it going to adapt? How's it going to evolve with changing technology? Now, what's really fascinating is that if I came out and I managed to say, okay, you know what, guys, like we have quantum computing coming. All of a sudden, quantum computing is going to uh, create a huge competitor will potentially break down Bitcoin. Now, we're not going to go into why it's going to break down, but let's just say for a second that quantum computing is a threat. Now, as a developer, I could come out and say, okay, we need to make XYZ change to the Bitcoin code and some of the individuals on Bitcoin may agree, some of them may not. Now, what's interesting is that over time, Bitcoin would fork. So you'd have Bitcoin or you'd have kind of two chains of Bitcoin, one with this new quantum computing change and one without. But what's interesting is that over time, it is the majority of the nodes that can vote on which one they want to go with. And so although Bitcoin is incredibly static in the sense that it doesn't allow for people to just go in willy nilly and change it, at the same time, it can also adapt to the changing environment. So as technology evolves, as we start to face other threats, Bitcoin, if people feel it is a legitimate threat, then Bitcoin still has the capacity to adapt to the changing environment, which is like, it's incredible. And I think that's really important to highlight because when you're looking at things like Ethereum, they're changing their whole monetary policy. They're changing their whole structure with very little input from others. And that's scary. You don't want a monetary system that can easily be changed just because some guy decides to change it. Yeah, and it, it comes down to that game theory we spoke a, bit, a little bit about earlier as well. Is like there's so much economic value tied up in the participants of this network that any change is very slow and methodical and pulled to pieces because there's so much wealth now tied up in this in in the mechanisms by which secure it. Any proposed change by developers are completely picked apart by other developers and other people who know how to interpret the code. Um, so any major change is very slow, like it takes a long time to even implement, uh, to flag support, because we allow at that time to be picked apart and make sure there's no security vulnerabilities. Um, and, and you know, that's why a lot of these other 
cryptocurrencies are always like said mentioned earlier like um ethereum's gone through that many monetary policy changes to suit what they're trying to achieve and they're try always trying to evolve and adapt and ultimately that opens up security flaws it's it's not as secure uh you know bitcoin's changes are very slow and methodical just because there's so much wealth tied up in those participants they don't want to fuck it either you know so they take their time they go through they make sure there's no security vulnerabilities before anything sort of proposed and changed and, and implemented which is um you know just another sort of testament to that game theoretical distributed um consensus mechanism and when we say that bitcoin is hard to change we're not saying that it's hard to develop on. There are tons of people working on top of and beside Bitcoin and innovating with all kinds of new monetary applications and technologies. What we're saying moves slowly is what really matters. The real discovery here, which is totally fixed, immutable, algorithmic money supply, right? What cannot change and will not change based on the incentives and architecture is 21 million supply cap. There's You can build all kinds of other shit underneath it, but that concrete foundation is going nowhere. And I think as, as the years trot on, people are realizing you can financially innovate on the current centralized fiat system all you want. It's basically the same thing as these shit coins. The real discovery is totally fixed peer-to-peer -peer money in terms of supply. That's the part of Bitcoin that's totally unchanging and unwavering. No, and, and again, you, you highlight one of the biggest misconceptions about Bitcoin, which is many of you guys have probably heard the fact that Bitcoin can only process seven transactions per second. So how is it ever going to be used as a monetary medium for the global population? Now, if we were trying to simply use Bitcoin, 100% fully agree. We can't process the global transactions when we're processing seven transactions per, per second. But exactly as Dan pointed out, which is the fact that people are building on top of Bitcoin. And now this is the same in our present day monetary system. Our system is not running on the base layer rails. Instead, you have these layers built on top of one another. And so to give you kind of an example, so at the base of the US system, you've got FedRail. Uh, and the FedRail is basically what allows these big commercial banks to interact with the Federal Reserve, the central bank. But individuals do not interact with FedRail. FedRail is uh, processing something like its average transaction is like 60 million, 70 million dollars. They're huge transactions between commercial banks. But then on top of FedRail, then you have the SWIFT network. Now the Swiss, SWIFT network is kind of an interbank network, so banks can communicate with one another. Now they're starting to process customer transactions. But then on top of the SWIFT network, you then have, say, credit cards. Credit cards allow for fast, minute, uh, minuscule transactions, quick and almost instantaneously. And then on top of that, you have credit cards, uh, sorry, you have gift cards and, and other forms of money. And so the same thing is being built on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the base layer. And we don't intend if Bitcoin was to ever be a monetary uh, or a monetary use case globally, which we hope it will. In such a scenario, Bitcoin is not going to be transacted on the base layer on the, the bottom layer between individuals. Instead, we're going right. to use things like lightning built on top of the base layer. And it's important to remember, you know, we've we've talked about it as a foundation. It's the anchor. It's the thing that is, and it's an open system. So anybody can build anything they want that anchors back to Bitcoin. Um, as long as it's not interacting or changing any of the consensus rules, it is completely within the realm of possibility that anything you can imagine can anchor back to Bitcoin in some way. And you can use it to bolster the network that you're trying to work on in any direction you want. 
Yeah, and there's another um, just sort of good point in history around uh, a suggested change that worked against uh, what, you know, the core foundation of keeping this accessible and distributed as much as possible is, is there was a period in 2017 we now refer back to as the block size wars where some players in the space, namely exchanges and miners, wanted to increase the block size. What that would have done is made the Bitcoin blockchain, the, the actual core data, grow exponentially and it would have put it out of the reach of most people to be able to run a node. It would have meant that the blockchain data size would have exceeded what most people have as a, as a standard sized hard drive at, at their homes. And what you would have ended up having, <clears throat> excuse me, what you would have ended up achieving is a centralization of those nodes. Uh, and, and when that happens, it becomes a little bit easier. Um, you know, as, as you, you want that, you want as many nodes participating in this, in a distributed ledger, a distributed consensus amongst a lot of players that is accessible to everybody. Uh, otherwise, you end up with a concentration of that consensus into the hands of a few. So, for example, like the Ethereum blockchain now is so huge that the only way to run a node is to hire data space on a centralized web server like AWS or something like that. It's become too large in order for everyday players to be able to participate in that network, which is the big pushback into that block size war suggestion was that it was gonna keep it out of reach for everyday people. Uh, so we rejected it. That suggestion was largely rejected. We ended up with a fork and now we ended up with a, a few iterations of Bitcoin, which one, the main one was Bitcoin Cash, and it was a huge failure because it took the power out of the hands of the people. Um, so the consensus went with, don't fuck with our blockchain. Don't fuck, don't fuck with our version. Don't fuck with our version of truth. We're not going to go down that path, which puts it out of our reach. So that's where Bitcoin, as we know it today, uh, survived. Um, we... we Let's pull on this thread for a second, because for something to for a ledger to be distributed, for something to be truly decentralized, people have to be able to participate. Let's draw an analogy back to the Bible again. The argument can be made that the Bible's immutability increased significantly with the advent of the printing press. As soon as you had the Bible in the hands of thousands more people than before and it wasn't just up front at the pulpits of of high class clerics all of a sudden you now have everyone with a bible right and that increases the bible's immutability right that's how bitcoin is too for the ledger to be distributed people have to be able to audit the ledger and that's what you just hinted at there daz is that the bitcoin ledger is reasonably small firefighters can run small computers in their house that don't use very much energy and audit the blockchain every second of every day. But as soon as these nodes, as soon as auditing the blockchain, the database that is Bitcoin becomes challenging, it immediately becomes less distributed. And so that's why, above all else, Bitcoin has prioritized its decentralization. And that is absolutely key to it enforcing its supply cap. Because the more set of the more sets of eyes looking at this thing, the less likely it is that this thing is going to change. And Bitcoin has tons of sets of eyes with diverse motivation, all cooperating, making sure that nothing changes. Another analogy I wanted to draw 
was just that it's kind of back to like the network effects of Bitcoin. It's that ultimately we all want to be using the same ruler for money. Like this is back to the idea that there's a base, very core set of rules, and then you can, there's exponential ability to build on top of it. So like when we all use the same metrics, like the same meter, the same yardstick, the same ruler, we build better structures because we're all able to cooperate based on those same measurements. And that's kind of the principle of a, of a basic system at its core that everyone agrees to and how it unlocks innovation at the edges is that it, once we cooperate on something and we can all communicate based on it, then we can all go our separate ways and, and bank on the reliability of that monetary ruler, which, which Bitcoin is. No, and, I, and I think it's really important to quickly highlight, and you kind of briefly touched on it, Dan, which is the way people tend to simply think about a lot of these cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin is as like a triangle. And on this triangle, there are three, obviously three corners, and you've basically got scalability, you've got stability, and then you've got decentralization. Now, the problem is you can only pick one side of this triangle. And so Bitcoin has obviously picked stability and decentralization. Scalability is trying to achieve on different layers. It doesn't want to try and achieve scalability or else all of a sudden, exactly as Daz said, if you're going to have more transactions, that's more information, then all of a sudden the average person can't run a node. But the problem is many of these other cryptocurrencies, what makes them different to Bitcoin is they've uh, picked uh, scalability and stability over decentralization. So all of a sudden, what makes them different to the US dollar? What makes them different to a lot of these other fiat currencies? Because they're centralized. And I think it's really important to highlight this triangle because Bitcoin has decided to go in a certain direction, which is prioritizing decentralization and stability over all else. Okay, so man, it's hard It's hard to know where to go next. Um, I think we're thinking based on our chat here on the side that we're going to do a full episode on mining. Maybe we'll dive into the implications of energy. So we're going to hold a lot of Bitcoin mining topics for another standalone episode. Uh, why don't we pivot and do a little more exploration and bring this back full circle to where the conversation started with the double spend Byzantine generals problem? Somebody want to pick that up and we can riff from there? 100%. So one of the most fascinating articles, and I can't even remember the name of the article, but we'll post it in the chat. It's uh, by Gigi. And he talks about how there's basically two types of value that you can get value in the form of tokens. So tokens could be, say, real estate. They could be coinage. They could be commodities, gold, things like that. And then you get value in the form of uh, ledgers. Now, the problem is when we have a token, to try and digitize a token, all of a sudden, we can double spend that token. Because if I say, for instance, took a picture of this incredible view in front of me of the mountains and the snow. Now, I could claim that as a token, but the problem is if I want to go and send it to Josh, I could just copy and paste it to Josh. Now I've got a version of it. Josh also has a version of it, so we've spent it. So when it came to value in the digital world, we had a problem. How do you store value in the digital world to make sure that people are not copying and pasting or double spending the money that they have? Now, if we take a step back and take Visa, for example, when we have an intermediary who manages a centralized ledger, so a transaction of re a record of transactions, what that entity does is ensure that if I go and spend $10 out of my wallet, that I'm not maintaining that $10 and then going spending it again. They ensure that that money transfers from wherever I want to spend it to the person who is intending to receive it. Now, in Bitcoin, this is what we had to overcome 
uh, we had to find a way to be able to transact with one another, ensuring that money was transferring from the, the sender to the, the receiver without enabling a double spend. And anyone can take it from that. Yeah, I think you've introed something that is important. I think we got into this in one of the first three episodes, and that's just the inherently centralizing nature of digital money up until this point. Like we've had we've had to do this. This is where just at pointing the finger and throwing mud at central bankers maybe falls short and doesn't embrace all the nuance. Like this these were technological upgrades that we had to do. Somebody had to delineate who owns what on the ledger until this thing came along. And I also think it's just like if you don't understand the the complexity of these problems, you're sitting there going like why why is this such a hard thing to solve? Um, and I think that's part of the reason why sometimes Bitcoin seems so startlingly simple when you first look at it that you can't think it's that big of an innovation. You guys know what I'm saying? You're like, wait, this, thing, yeah. this thing's nearly not that complex. How is he the first motherfucker that thought of this? It's like, well, it is really complex. And he assembled all these things in this perfect manner to solve this problem that uh, had, had really befuddled people for a long, long time. Yeah. And he also, in that same article, I can't remember it off the top of my head either. We'll put it in the show notes. He talks about how in the physical world, like say you're, uh, I think he used an example as a shepherd, you have, you know, hooks that you have, say 20 sheep, you put them on the sheep. When they come back, you take the hooks off, you put them on the wall. You can verify because in the world, in the reality, those 20, you know, rings are back on the wall. You can verify without having to go back to a ledger and verifying or double checking that they're all there because they are all physically there and you can see it in the digital world or on a ledger there, you can make a mistake. Even not even a mistake of omission by just simply missing one or something like you could put a number in the wrong spot. The problem is with ledgers themselves is that they require authority or they require centralization. They require somebody who makes the decision on if this is there or not. And somebody can cheat. Somebody can lie. And the disintermediation of allowing a central third party to have the ability to do that is the problem that we're solving here inherently. Now, and I, I was just going to mention quickly as well, which is a lot of individuals get confused and they think that when they have a wallet, they have Bitcoin in their wallet. And again, it's something that I think really interesting to touch upon, which is when you have a wallet, if you have a USB hard drive, if you have a cold storage, if you have an account with a centralized exchange, whatever that may be, you do not have any Bitcoin in your wallet. What you have is the right to be able to move Bitcoin on this ledger. So you've mm. basically just got an account name that has a certain amount of Bitcoin under it. And so if you hold the private key that accesses that Bitcoin, it's not sat in your wallet. You've just basically been given the right to be able to move that to someone else if you want to. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And that's something I didn't understand for a long time when I first started playing around with Bitcoin, having it in a wallet. The, the idea that you have no actual Bitcoin, nobody does. I mean, obviously it doesn't actually exist. It's just a ledger entry on this decentralized network. But what you actually have is the ability, the password, the key phrase that allows you to move whatever amount of Bitcoin you actually own. It's probably important to introduce this concept of a coin base. Um, so how Bitcoin comes to be birthed, how it's released into the world. And that's through this process of mining, which we're going to get to in a later episode now. But uh, I think it's okay to introduce this concept and it, and it comes down to you know the game theory as why, why would you waste your energy to mine Bitcoin? And it's for the block reward. So the block reward is made up of uh, uh, 
a, a base coin base introduction, which is the um, reward to miners for wasting their time and energy, basically, on this thing called blockchain or this thing called Bitcoin, uh, and as well as the transactions on that base layer uh, form up this block reward. So that's the monetary incentive. So if we go back right through to um, the the origins of Bitcoin, uh, the first people to mine Bitcoin were rewarded with fifty. Bitcoin per block. So there was 50 Bitcoin released every 10 minutes and that formed the coin base. So that put the Bitcoin into circulation in order for that to be able to be spent. Um, and basically what happens from there is this ledger now from the, the from the second Bitcoin, the first Bitcoin um, funnily enough had uh, built into the code that it couldn't be spent. So the first block reward was actually unspendable. But from the second block that was appended to that original um, original block, was able to be spent and it was the first 50 sort of bitcoin right uh now basically every block that comes from there was another 50 bitcoin until we reach what's known as the halving um, which we sort of touched on in previous episodes where that was reduced so it was only 25 and then there's 12.5 up to the current epoch of of um bitcoin uh rewards which is 6.25 and then as of around may next year in 2024 there's going to be another reduction of that block reward so without sort of getting too distracted on how that incentivizes miners moving forward over the next sort of 120 years, that all of those block rewards form the coin base. So then the ledger is like, there's, there's your first entry, 50 Bitcoin. And then basically from that first or the second block, there was not able to be spent more than 50 Bitcoin because they didn't exist. So it was from there that now we build out this distri- distribution of who owns that 50 Bitcoin. So the first miner might have sent that off to you know five different individuals. Now, each of these different individuals on that um, database now have ten a balance of 10 Bitcoin each. And then so that with the next block, that just keeps carrying on and building upon whoever solved that block now has the next 50. And whoever solves the next block now has that next 50. And then it's that distribution from there, which is then copied and pasted onto everybody's version of of whoever's running a node now has a immutable copy of that ledger and who has the keys, uh, the addresses by which all of those Bitcoin are attributed. So then it comes back to the concept that Seb just introduced around wallets is how do we control who can actually spend that Bitcoin? I think what you just articulated in a roundabout way, but might might be worth clarifying, is that it, it's sort of this cooperation between miners and nodes. Um, I think what's complex about the direction we're going here is that ultimately it is proof of work and mining that did solve the double spend problem. Like if I was to give a really quick answer of like, how was this problem solved? What is the innovation Satoshi introduced that made it so that a digital ledger can't be manipulated and double spent and all that. It's proof of work. Um, and it, and what's so, and we'll get into this in the standalone episode, but essentially what mining does is it blends the physical and the digital world. Like purely digital items can be manipulated. But I think a, a, a good way of thinking through Bitcoin is it's not a purely digital item. Like through math and cryptography, Bitcoin is linked to the physical world via proof of work and mining. These miners are basically the ones that settle transactions and and assemble the blockchain as you just kind of went through. So miners are the ones that are assembling and settling the transactions. And then the, the node network, which we've referenced, 
they're enforcing the rules and checking the accuracy of every single transaction that ever happens. So they're ensuring nodes are ensuring a couple things that the proper amount of work was done, the physical tie, the real world energy tie was completed by miners, and that everything the miners did was totally accurate. But without that real world energy tie, this thing is just another failed attempt at decentralized immutable money. It's that real world tie that makes this thing significant. I think dovetailing in with that as well is the miners, although they they do settle all the transactions, there's also this invisible hand that's at work here, which is the difficulty adjustment. So at, without going too deeply into the mining and all of that, in order, like some people in the tradi- traditional system, we understand that money is basically something that is made up at the central bank. They can do what they please. They can change the ledger at will. But in Bitcoin, every four years, this difficulty epoch happens, which is the distribution is cut in half. So every four years, the distribution is cut in half. And no matter how many miners are on board, no matter how many or how few, the difficulty is changed every two weeks to, to make sure that the correct amount of Bitcoin is put out into circulation via the Coinbase that Daz was talking about. So right now it's 6.25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. Uh, in 2024, that will be cut in half. And every four years after that, it will be cut in half again. So it's important to understand that no matter how much energy, no matter how many miners, no matter how much work is put into this network, it algorithmically checks itself and makes sure that the inflation distribution is happening exactly the way it should over the course of every four-year epoch. And I think that's a really important thing to note because back to the trusting nobody, we're not trusting anybody to distribute money Bitcoin into this network. We're trusting this algorithm to do exactly what it's been coded to do, which is distribute these things exactly on the method and on the schedule that we all know is already set in stone. I think as well, it's important to tie kind of this holistic picture of kind of what it is that we've just been talking about, because we've kind of touched on four different individuals who are kind of involved in kind of the Bitcoin network. So first off, we have the developers. The developers are basically individuals, whether it's Satoshi or whether it is anyone can basically become a developer. There's, I don't know how many developers there are, but there's many developers contributing for uh, contributing to the Bitcoin uh, code base. Uh, so you've got the developers who are working on trying to create changes that ensure that Bitcoin is staying up to date with all of these technological advance, uh, advances. You've then got the miners, exactly as we've been touched on. Miners are basically processing transactions and miners are rewarded for processing transactions. But because they're rewarded for processing transactions, it's in their best interest to uh, play fairly and stick to the rules. Because if they don't, they're going to lose that reward. You've then got the nodes, which look at everything, all of the transactions that have been processed and ensure that all the miners are staying and playing by the rules. But at the same time, they're also the ones that implement the changes from the developers. So if there is a change, it is through the nodes which we vote as to are we going to go forth with this change or not. And then finally, we have us, the individuals who are transacting in Bitcoin and we're using it day to day. And we are another layer of verification on top of the nodes because the nodes may decide, you know what, we're going to go in this direction. But if everyone, when, and this gets a little more complex, but if Bitcoin forks and all of a sudden there's two directions. So this one over here, for instance, in my quantum computing example, let's say there's a quantum computing example, which has got the change that makes it uh, far more, um, uh, what's the word, far more, invincible to uh, quantum computing and then you've got the traditional model and all of a sudden quantum computing is a threat 
If the individuals decide to, you know what, I'm going to store all my money in the quantum computing one, they're also voting saying, I'm, I believe this one is of more value. And so all of a sudden, you've got these four individuals all interacting and collaborating together. So you've got the developers that are doing the code base. You've then got the miners that are verifying transactions are being rewarded to do so. You've then got the nodes, which are overlooking the whole system, and they're ensuring that changes are being implemented and the, no uh, and the miners are playing by the rules. And then you've got us who are transacting and then directing capital to where we feel uh, offers the most value. I think it's important at this point, too, to, to articulate the history of Bitcoin and how hard it is to change the rules. So the status quo in Bitcoin is that the rules stay the same. Let's just take the most simple rule, that being the hard supply cap of 21 million or the block size, I guess, for where I'm about to go. The, the size of a Bitcoin block can only be so big because if Bitcoin blocks get bigger, then the amount of data that's in the blockchain increases Hardware needs go up. It's harder to run computers that audit block uh, Bitcoin, and it reduces the decentralization. So small blocks equals more decentralized, I guess would be the summary. There, there's a number of these consensus rules. If we go back to 2017, it's known as the block size wars. You had an environment where the vast majority of miners wanted to change Bitcoin. They wanted to hard fork Bitcoin. They wanted to increase the block size in this specific example. But the, for, for if you're brand new, they wanted to change one of the base consensus rules of Bitcoin. The, no, the, the node community, the users, the developers largely disagreed. Most predominantly, the nodes disagreed. And because of that, there wasn't consensus throughout the entire network and Bitcoin didn't change, even though the vast majority of the miners wanted to change this feature nothing changed, which was a profound demonstration. And by the way, there was a ton of money behind that group. Like all the powerful money companies in the space were all behind changing Bitcoin at that time and nothing budged. And that's a manifestation, a tangible manifestation from 2017 of how freaking hard it is to change Bitcoin. And that's because you have not only a ton of different users but with very di diverse incentives and different roles in verifying Bitcoin, and they're all checking each other. And it's, it's just extremely hard to change because of how diverse that game theory is within the protocol and network. Yeah, and it is, as an aside, Bitcoin Cash came out of that, and it has steadily declined in value over the last five years since. It still exists, but it's a... So just to explain really quick, what can happen in a situation like that where there's a contention between who and what is going to be Bitcoin, there can be a fork, which is effectively a rule change that a certain number of nodes decide to take advantage of or, or just split off onto that one. So now this separates Bitcoin into two different fundamental blockchains, ones that follow the new rules, ones that follow the old rules. Bitcoin was the ones following the old rules. Bitcoin Cash was the new rules with a larger block size. The vast majority of participants decided they would rather follow the old rules of Bitcoin. So their nodes split off into their own network or I should say more properly, Bitcoin Cash's nodes split off into their own network. And because it it just didn't, it wasn't something that most of the participants wanted, the network was weaker and has slowly bled to death over the last five years. It was a very weird time to be in Bitcoin. It, I mean, because if, and oh, one other thing that is important to note is if you own Bitcoin at the time that split happens, you now own Bitcoin Cash and you own Bitcoin. So you can hedge your bets anyway. You don't know which way this thing's going to go, you now own both in equal proportion. So you could sell off your Bitcoin cash and buy more Bitcoin if you were confident, or you can just let that thing ride and um, 
let the let everything just kind of settle itself out and you've got no real risk. I think um before we I think it's something that's important to talk about a little bit is encryption here and specifically asymmetric encryption on Bitcoin. And then another name for that is public key cryptography. And this is something that's existed for quite a long time, at least back to the seventies. As far as I know, it's effectively the way it works is you have two, you have a uh, public key. So like when you receive Bitcoin from somebody, you give them an address that is your public key and your your Bitcoin, your private keys, the ones you use to sign your transactions are derived from that using, using a mathematical process. But the interesting thing about this is you can derive almost an infinite amount of public keys from your, I'm, I think I said that backwards. You have a private key. You could derive public keys from that. It's mind blowing to understand how secure this thing is using the algorithm that they use. There are, if, so if you can imagine that you have a private key. If someone gets that private key, they can spend your Bitcoin. They effectively own you. The The odds of somebody finding that private key are so remote. This is some of the math, some of the breakdown that I've found reading about this a little bit. Imagine a grain of sand on the earth. There's think of all the beaches on the single earth. Your private key is one of those grains of sand, but it's orders of magnitude more than that. If you can imagine 132,000 earths by 132,000 Earths, that's in astronomical terms, that's 11 times to the sun and back that square. And then multiply that vertically 33 and a half billion times the length of the known universe and find a grain of sand in that vast ocean of sand <laughs> that when you read and understand that. And like Seb, you mentioned earlier that uh, quantum computers could make this feasible actually but those are quite a distance away and we can change this in the interim. But just as it stands now, that is the, that, that those are the odds that it would take for someone to guess your private key. I mean, I can't think of anything. I mean, you, you could win Powerball probably thousands of times before you're ever going to find someone's private key. Uh, to, to, to clarify for a second for anyone that's, that's just brand new, Basically, that's Josh is articulating how challenging it would be to to hack or get somebody's password to get into Bitcoin. Like a private key is essentially steal your money. Yeah. Is, is, so as Seb said earlier, and I forget who else chimed in, like nobody owns Bitcoin. Bitcoin owns your Bitcoin. It's just on the ledger to move or spend the money on the ledger. You need that private key. I think a good way to understand it is like your public key is your bank account number that somebody could send money to and your private key is your password to get into that bank account. And it's basically mathematically impossible to infiltrate someone else's account. And, and I think it's also really important to add one more kind of point that I think is important, which is the fact that when it comes to Bitcoin, Bitcoin is pseudo anonymous. And so with your bank account, when you sign up for a bank account, you have to obviously give them your driver's license, your passport, whatever information you may have so that they know who you are. Your bank account is attached to your name. Anyone can spin up a Bitcoin wallet and all of a sudden you're going to have a public uh, a public key and a private key. Now, exactly as Dan says, you can think of your public key as your bank account number. You can think as your private key as your bank account password. Now, if anyone finds this bank account password because it's not tied to your name, basically it's theirs. All of a sudden they can access your bank account, they can spend your money. And this is why it is so important to make sure that if you are self-custodying, which we highly recommend, if you are self-custodying your Bitcoin, you 
have backups of your private key and you have a secure system, you do enough research to understand how to secure your private key in a safe and effective manner. Um, but anyway, uh, I wanted to expand a little bit on what Josh was saying, uh, which is the fact that when we have the first iterations of um, public-private key cryptography, we just used to distribute our public, uh, our public key. But the problem is that meant that if someone obtained our public key, which they could see all of our transaction history, they could see all of the money that I had in my bank account, which wasn't that secure. And so on top of public keys, they started to build public addresses. And so public addresses are derived from our public key. And so you can think of it as I've got my home address. So I live here in Whistler. But if I don't want to give someone my home address, I can open up a PO box. Now that PO box can still be attached to my address. But if someone sends mail to it and they were to look in my PO box, they're not going to find my home address. And then each time that I transact, I don't have to open up just one PO box. If I was to transact with Josh, I can give him one public address. If I was to transact with Dan, I can give him one public address. I can give out thousands of these public addresses, but no one is ever going to know my public key, so they can't see all of my transactions. And so I just wanted to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, that's a great analogy too. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point about distributing that pseudonymous ownership as well. Like, so like, like Seb was saying, I, I can, he, he gives me a public address. I can go and check the contents of that public address. He might've used that a thousand times. So if I know that public address, I can go and see every single transaction that he has done using that same public address. But if I want, I, there's no way I can peer in and see what his other public addresses are knowing that one public address. And this is the power of that cryptography. Um, by the same token, I can't get back to his public key or his private key in any way, shape or form with any computing power that, that's available now. And it's akin to finding, you know, that combination is, is like um, Dan was saying, it's akin to finding one atom within the whole entire universe. That's how, that's how vast, um, vast that is. I feel like it's like trying to find the single sock in my clothes pile. It's just <laughs> you never want to find a single sock. It's never. Uh... No, yeah, you find a single sock at the firehouse, run away. It's probably going to be crispy, and that thing goes straight. Put a pair of gloves on, throw that thing in the trash. Um, or just here, pretend you didn't see it. Yeah, we actually did have a guy, uh, Jim, who was fucking with everybody at the firehouse. He he had a bunch of extra socks he brought from home, and he just hung up one individual sock in each bunk. We would never dream, Josh. That's a that's a place of the no. utmost professionalism. Um, no. I wanted to say one other thing that I think ties some of these themes together. So we're talking about public-private key cryptography, how hard it is to get a to, to guess a private key, removing intermediaries. Why does this matter, guys? It's probably a good place to end. It matters because it gives you, you listener, control over your money, and that is a very novel thing in the 21st century. Bitcoin is is not a claim on anything. It is the thing itself. It is the only digital good that with confidence you can know that you possess and nobody else can fuck with. It's totally peer-to-peer. Me and Seb, me and Josh, me and Daz can transact and there's nobody in the middle and nobody can, if, we're, if we're custodying this thing properly, nobody can come take it from us. And that is an extremely, extremely powerful innovation when you understand the detriments and the challenges that come with intermediaries. Let's just take one case study in the 21st century. You're a refugee fleeing fill-in-the-blank country, and there are capital controls that are instituted by the the nation state that you're a part of, where you can only leave with X number of units of whatever currency. 
or they check every orifice of your body to make sure you're not hiding a gold dildo in your asshole. Whatever it is, it's very, very hard to exit certain jurisdictions with your money in the 21st century. We now have a form of money that you can completely own through math and cryptography by memorizing 12 words in your head, getting on a plane or getting in a boat, going across the world. Everything we're saying in this episode kind of comes to a head. And the point of all this is to say that this is the world's first digital bearer asset that you can custody and have complete control over amidst a backdrop that is an incredible shit show, is insanely fragile, and is wrought with more and more corrupt intermediaries. This dinner disintermediates all of that. 100%. And I think building on that as well as at the start, I kind of discussed this idea of expression. And we need to have proof of expression. We need to be able to see where money has gone in the past, but we also need to ensure that we can spend money into the future and it's not going to be impaired. And a perfect example of this is during COVID with the pandemic, uh, with the, uh, the truckers in Canada. If you wanted to support someone who had the same views as you, but you couldn't physically be there, all of a sudden with traditional fiat, your bank accounts can be frozen. They can, they can basically impair your ability to support these individuals. Whereas when it comes to Bitcoin, all of a sudden you're able to direct capital to where you see fit so that the you can basically express yourself in an unimpeded way, which is so important to allow individuals to make informed decisions about what it is that people value. Yeah, and if the, if the world's tracking the way it has tracked in the last couple of years, whether regardless of your politics and your particular views about whatever went on, um, I fully respect your your ability to express yourself in, in that form. However... If you do disagree, I think Seb just uh, raised a really good point. If you do disagree, the traditional monetary system and the fiat rails have and will be controlled in order to, you know, steer a particular thought pattern or a particular view in a certain direction, and it's forever increasing. So if if that doesn't, you know, gel with your views of being a sovereign individual and freedom and liberty then by sure as shit, you need to understand this technology because it's going to be so important in the, in the proceeding, you know, in the, in the years to come. I've got a, um, I'm sure you guys have all read it. Bitcoin is time. I reread that in the last week. And there's a quote out of this that I thought was perfectly fitting for the end of this discussion. So this is out of Gigi's Bitcoin is time. What is the new idea here? What Toshi, what Satoshi figured out is how to independently agree upon a history of events without central coordination. He found a way to implement a decentralized timestamping scheme that doesn't require a timestamping company, a server. It doesn't require a newspaper or any other physical medium of proof. And it can keep the ticks more or less constant, even when operating in an environment of even faster CPU clock times. And that's with the difficulty adjustment we talked about. So that is... In Gigi's view, in my view, and I think that you all of you gentlemen would agree, this coordination of events in a decentralized structure is the magnum opus of what Satoshi created here. Yeah, and, and building on that as well, there's one more that I think is absolutely fascinating. And uh, it's uh, Julian Assange, so obviously the founder of WikiLeaks. It's a talk by him. It's either in 2011 or 2014. I can't quite remember. If you type it on YouTube, you'll be able to find it. And he talks about how history... And if you've read 1984, it's he who controls the present can control the past. He who controls the past controls the future. And so when you can rewrite history, all of a sudden you can alter how people see the future. And so I think that it is really important to make sure that we have an accurate record of history. And Julian Assange highlights that for the first time in history with Bitcoin, 
we have an accurate record of history that cannot be altered. Whereas when you look at, say, museums, all of this record of history is in a centralized location. People don't want to show stuff. If the woke are over, overcoming the political that's views and all example. of a sudden they want to knock down statues and pretend things didn't happen, that's, that's actually happening today. And so Bitcoin has an actual verifiable proof of history. That is huge. That is huge. There's another um, period in history that we're sitting at right now. We're on the precipice of, of, I don't know if any of you guys have used this chat GPT, but it's absolutely phenomenal, right? <laughs> oh yeah, we have. But hey, wait, as a quick anecdote, I, as a quick anecdote on that, sorry to hijack, but uh, the application I'm finding it most useful for right now, Daz, is explaining macro shit I don't understand. So like this morning I was asking it, explain the reverse repo market to a firefighter. <laughs> and it gave me a great simple explanation of the reverse repo market but this thing it unlocks a lot if you're a hungry learner sorry to hijack go ahead no yeah i've been using it very in very similar ways going down a nuclear energy route at the moment which is which is phenomenal but um i think like it it, it presents a real danger as well seven i were riffing on this uh, only yesterday uh, around What's going to be verifiable truth moving forward? So if I'm putting so much trust into this chat GBT, I'm going to have to put a fair bit of trust in the fact that it's going to tell me uh, what you know what is truth, right? And the, the other thing which is really interesting is the cost of production now for content is, is approaching zero. Yes. So somebody can just spin up a book in fuck all time using... ChatGPT to say, and, and it will basically frame up any argument that you want to make, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you can just remove any bias that you choose to make. But your cost of production to put out a book now, spruiking any sort of truth that you want, uh, has, has marginally gone to zero with, 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 with quick time. So we're at this precipice now where we're going to be inundated with information and it's going to be really, well, much more difficult to pass through what is, what is actual truth and what is reference truths. And I think this is another opportunity for uh, just to highlight the power of this public-private key cryptography um, and, and this other protocol that's starting to take shape called NOSTA is basically if, if I didn't say, you know, we, we could go out on Twitter, right? Somebody could create, spin up another fake Twitter account, right? Uh, and start spruiking, saying, this is what Daz said. But NOSTA, on the other hand, is, is a partnership between this private public key cryptography whereby I actually sign these transactions using my private key. So if, if it's not signed verifiably through this cryptography, then I didn't say it. And there's a real big opportunity here with this pivot point between this cost of production on, on, um, on information and this public private key cryptography whereby we can meld the two worlds uh, and start to intertwine verifiable truths by, by the actual sources. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, that does make sense. That's totally. a, that's a great point. It, it, I love that theme. Man, two great, great finishing comments from both of you. Because I, I, I think we have to look forward and see how precarious truth is going to be. Like how are, with how easy it is to manipulate digital information. How in the floppy fuck is our species going to cooperate is one of the questions that and that's where Bitcoin comes in on this on this white horse and says, here I am. Come to daddy. Like this is a way for for all of us to cooperate and communicate without having to trust each other and without any fuckery in the middle. I mean, that it's an innovation that's time has come it, that there's no irony like that's that's how things work. 
they get developed and built precisely when they're needed, or at least ones that take off and we all know about. And that's what Bitcoin did. Um, think about the development on everything, how fast it's going to expedite. My brother works at a, an engineering firm and they're using chat GPT to write firmware for some of the products they're making now. Like this happens in the last month. Uh, you're a Bitcoin developer. You can take out a bunch of the intermediary boring steps for moving faster and then go back and check everything again. But this just accelerates this entire inflection point in history to a degree that I don't think any of us have really grokked yet. Oh, yeah. man. People, people have zero idea, and I don't think they understand the deflationary aspects, and this may be a whole no, conversation in its own. People have no understanding about the deflationary aspects, about how if ChatGPT is basically essentially free, and all of a sudden, all of these jobs, whether you're a lawyer and you need to spin up a draft document, rather than spending 10 hours, you can now spend 20 minutes, read over the document to make sure it's accurate, change a few things. All of yep. a sudden, there's going to be jobs that are no longer necessary, a large proportion of jobs in society. So that's going to drive down prices. But if prices are going down, then there's less profits. And if there's less profits, well, who's going to pay the interest payments on our debt that we have right now? So all of a sudden, this is where our system, I believe in the next like year or two, it is quickly, what is quickened pace as to a major deflationary collapse of our monetary system. Yeah, if 100% I could agree. Just do another little segue into another tangential yeah. conversation is that's why it's so important for a deflationary currency and i was only just thinking about this this morning before i jumped on with you guys probably why i was late because i was sitting there having my coffee pondering this but yesterday i'm changing the wheel bearings on my fucking boat trailer right i'm not a mechanic so it took me about four years four years <laughs> literally it took me about four hours to to change these bearings because i don't do it every day right so it was a bit finicky didn't have the right tools but i know how to do it i know what i'm doing but it was a pain in the ass right and a deflationary currency in an inflationary currency where i know my purchasing power is losing losing time my goal now is to stack and invest right to create a better future for myself so i made a conscious decision to spend the time and do those wheel bearings myself rather than pay somebody a professional. But as my purchasing power increases over time, fast forward four years, there is zero fucking chance I'm doing my own fucking wheel bearings again <laughs> as my purchasing power increases. And I'm looking back, my time is going to be way more valuable in the future knowing that I have a, a, a monetary standard that has gone up in purchasing power over time. I'm going to pay the next pleb who wants to work hard and stack I would gladly hand over that money. Whereas right now, living in this inflationary world, it was more of a use case, uh, it, was, it was more of benefit for me to stack that that money uh, you know, for the longer term and do that work myself. And this is why I think ultimately Bitcoin's gonna be distributive because those people who worked and stacked harder as their um, time preference imp improves and their purchasing power improves over time, they're gonna want to spend those sats and let the next guy do it because my time is all of a sudden going to be way more valuable. Whereas in inflationary world, that is eroding at an ever alarming yeah. rate. And I do things myself more than ever because that underlying value is getting eroded. To bring this back to where we started, when Bitcoin is at a million dollars in three months from now, I'm probably going to sell a little bit of Bitcoin and pay off my house. I'm going to be, I'll be straight up. I'll no, pay off Josh, my house. You don't have nearly, we, yeah, you, we just talk about it. We don't own any of this shit. Um, there's nothing yeah, to get rid of. Like the, we just like to Well, funnily it. enough, I lost all my Bitcoin in this boating accident that I just repaired the trailer. You know, I repaired the boat trailer and I'm going to have an accident again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what a great chat. 
I knew this topic was going to be tough. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. I found it to be tough. Yeah. Like when you have the listener in mind, you're like, man, oh man, this is so hard to tie together. Because I mean, even for hacks like us, there's thousands of hours of research represented here. And to try to distill this down, I'm going to go back to how I started and saying, if you're if you have more questions than answers based on that last hour and a half, this is, this is a topic that you need to dig into to really be able to grasp. So we've been doing this on the first few episodes. We'll do it again in this one. Down in the show notes, we'll link. We'll each pick a resource that we think applies to this topic, each one of the four of us. We'll link that below. Also, to, to, to name specific things, the book Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker. We're actually talking to Jan next week. That is a great book for digesting how, how Bitcoin works. The Bitcoin White Paper. If you haven't read the Bitcoin White Paper and you're a Bitcoiner, it's time to go read that thing. And then it's actually let, very digestible for a normal person. And then Looking Glass. Uh, we have read a rough draft of a uh, like a fundamentals curriculum that you have that is insanely well done. Daz, we've read a lot of your own stuff explaining nodes and miners and whatnot. Give people a plug on that. I know it's not out yet, but it will be in the future and this will be airing for a while. So a little handoff there before we go too, if you don't mind, guys. Yeah, I, know, I was just about to say that it's one of those things that when you start diving into Bitcoin, you just want someone to tell you this nice cohesive story about how Bitcoin works. But the problem is it's a freaking circle. You can start anywhere on the circle, but it's all connected and, it, and they all link round right. to one another. And so whether we start with miners, whether we start with nodes, whether we start with developers, they all interconnect and it makes it so challenging to discuss this topic. And so if you have any questions, go and research, go dig into it, because I feel like a lot of the time, we may not have touched on things that interest you or we've created curiosity and go and explore the things that interest you. Bitcoin is a rabbit hole that touches on freaking every aspect of life. And it's so important. And that's where this book that uh, what Dan mentioned, so we're, we're basically releasing a course in the coming month or so that we've also converted into a book uh, called Beers for Bitcoin. And it basically just dives into everything Bitcoin. So how Bitcoin functions, the, the role of the nodes, the miners, uh, developers, exchanges, all that kind of stuff. And so... If you want to check that out, that will be up on lookingglasseducation.com. Uh, it will also, we'll probably tweet about it at lookingglassedu on our Twitter profile. Yeah, so just highlight as well that um, we're releasing it in both a book and a course. So our overarching theme for Looking Glass is to make all of our content free and accessible to those people who need it most. And that will continue to be the case. But if you can spare some sats and support that idea, um, you know, uh, purchase the book. The book will be available for sale and we'll be using those sort of proceeds to make sure that we're viable moving forward. Um, so if you can spare the stats, buy the book. Uh, it'll be available in hard copy as well as um, EPUB version. Um, but, you know, if, if the stats are important to you too, by all means, go and do the free course. So the book will probably launch first. The course will be a little bit later on, um, but expect those things to come out in the next couple of months. And, and as Seb said, it, it's an all-encompassing sort of um, primer for Bitcoin, right from the history, right through to how it works and how you would use it in, in today's sort of world. So um, jump on and check it out. Incredibly well done. Uh, thanks for the work you guys are doing on all that. As a roadmap to what's coming, uh, we elected in the side chat during this conversation that we're going to do a whole nother episode on mining and energy. And then past that, we have buying and custody. We have Bitcoin, not crypto. We have lightning network, layered money and scaling, and then Bitcoin misconceptions and viable risks. That's a rough roadmap to what we have coming in this series. Continue to come out roughly once a month. 
Appreciate you boys. These are fun every month. No, thank you guys. Honestly, what you guys are doing, I think, is definitely needed. I think similar to Looking Glass, like we very much believe there needs to be more content for the average person trying to distill down these complexities into jargon-free content. And so what you guys are doing is freaking phenomenal. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us. Thanks, Appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for listening to the episode, folks. If you're appreciating our content and smelling what we're stepping in here at BCB Pod, here's a couple notes to pay attention to as we close out. First, you can genuinely help us extend our reach by leaving us a review on Apple or your podcast app of choice, as well as subscribing to our Blue Collar Bitcoin YouTube channel, where we post videos of these discussions as well as other shorts. Second, we are live on Podcast 2.0 apps. Our go-to app for listening to pods is Fountain App. Literally get paid sats for just listening to podcasts. There is no catch. You can also stream sats to content creators on the Lightning Network on Fountain, as well as create and share clips with the Fountain community. Go find us on the Fountain app, link down in the show notes. Third, we are active on social media, most predominantly Twitter, at blue underscore collar BTC. We're also on Noster, Instagram, and TikTok. All of these links are on our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io. If you want to get in touch with us, our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, continue a relentless and open-minded pursuit of knowledge. Take care.